0: Two-step Bible study. Two-step. We can call it the first rule of Bible hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. That's what we're going to cover tonight, the first rule. We're just going to go into it for a few minutes. Because there's a two-step approach to understanding any verse of the Bible. The Bible has no contradictions. That is the first rule in different words. We're starting with the larger context, the larger context of the whole Bible, because there's no contradictions in the Bible. We first prove what a verse cannot mean. This is number one. This is the two-step. The first thing you do with a verse of the Bible is prove what it does not mean. Then, and only then, do we try to find its true and proper sense. If you don't do that, it's incredibly inefficient. You're going to be distracted, and somebody's going to be, but, 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 but. Prove what it doesn't mean first. Then you can use the other rules to prove what it does mean. Very simple. We use this rule of Bible study at least twice on Sunday in John chapter 8. This is the passage that we've read twice tonight. There's the comparison with God speaking from heaven. Here's the method of inspiration. Men were moved by the Holy Ghost. And here's the rule. Knowing this first. God tells me. I like it when he tells me what's first. Knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture, of the Scripture, meaning no part of the Scripture, no revelation of the Scripture, is of any private interpretation. This is our first rule of Bible study. Knowing this first, oh yes, I want you to mem- rem- memorize and remember this important verse. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, no contradictions in the Bible. 2 Peter 1.20, that's the verse I just gave you. We accept this as the first rule, for God gave it to us as the first rule. The word private in that particular sentence and context means separate, alone, individual, peculiar, or special. There is no prophecy of the Scripture that is to be considered separate, alone, individual, peculiar, or special. It has to fit the rest of the Bible. No part of Scripture can contradict the whole Bible. It's all got to fit together Because it has one author, as you'll see shortly. There are no contradictions. We reconcile all parts. Why? Why is this rule first? Why is it important? Because the 40 writers were not writing on their own volition. They were writing for one author. And so it's all consistent, all tied together, no contradictions, fits together. It's one perfect whole. We assume at all times that every part fits perfectly. There it is, knowing this first. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private, there's that word, private interpretation. We do not come up with separate, individual, alone interpretations that do not fit the rest of the Bible. God forbid. Here's another verse for this first rule of Bible study, Romans 3, 4. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. That's what our website is named, let God be true. No contradictions based on Romans 3, 4. We start interpretation trusting God's truthfulness because God is true. Men aren't, God is. All men are liars. God is true. Any contradiction? Contradiction is our ignorance or confusion. It's our fault. We accept the premise the Bible is totally perfect. Interpretation finds solutions exalting Bible integrity. We're always after Bible integrity, God's integrity making the Bible fit for the honor and glory of God's truthfulness. Any contradictions remaining are our fault, not his. We just haven't figured it out yet. We reject any thoughts that the text is the problem. The text is not the problem. It's our understanding of the text because God has preserved the text to us. Another verse, Proverbs 8, My mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth and right to them that find knowledge. That's Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8 speaking about revelation from God. No contradictions based on this text. There is nothing untrue, forward, or perverse in the Bible. Knowledge and understanding make everything in the Bible plain and right. Just a lack of our knowledge or understanding if there's some passage not plain yet. Confusion or problems are always our ignorance, not God's problem. From John 10, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? It's a unique use of a word in the Bible. Men are called gods. Civil rulers are called gods in the Bible. That's why we respect our civil rulers, because they're gods. They're gods, ministers to us for good, and they're gods. If he called them gods, Jesus, referring to God unto whom the word of God came, the writers of Scripture, and the Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. That word, God's, is the word that should be in the Bible. Scripture cannot be broken because that word is in the Bible, and therefore it's the right word, and we don't try to change the word, and we don't try to find its dynamic equivalent like the NIV wants us to. It's the right word, and Scripture cannot be broken. You should always remember this verse when you're dealing with someone else with a false Bible version, get them to go to John 10, 35 first and ask them, do you believe that scripture cannot be broken? And you're showing it to them. Yes. If I can break your book, do you understand that it can't be scripture? Now they don't like to go out that limb very far as you light up your chainsaw called the King James Bible, but it works because we can take their Bibles apart and they can't take ours apart. No contradictions. Jesus said, Scripture can't be broken. Thank you, Lord. Every word may be confidently trusted without error. We use this verse to show arguing individual words like Jesus did there. One word. You want to pick on me for calling myself the Son of God when your scriptures say that mere civil rulers that are not divine presence on earth are called gods? There's a great doctrinal argument from one word. No matter what we find in the Bible, we trust it to be fully true. Anything that looks like a contradiction is our fault. Yes, I'm repeating myself. I want you to know what the first rule is. There's no contradictions in the Bible. It all fits together perfectly, so we reconcile it. We love false Bibles when it comes to this particular point, since they are so easy to break. 1 John 2.21, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth. But because ye know it and that no lie is of the truth. No contradictions according to this text. The the Bible cannot have a lie. So we can't have it, catch it, say it, preach it, coming and going. It's got to be consistent one direction and that's the direction of truth. The trust is just that. The truth. It cannot have a lie. We trust God's word. God's word is truth. It doesn't have any. What appears to be a lie is only an apparition to our poor understanding. It's our job to always reconcile any apparent lies. Of course, there's no contradictions, but we can't help the NIV with who killed Goliath in 2 Samuel 21, 19, or where the quotation is from in Mark 1, 2. We can't help them because they do have lies in their Bibles. There we are, back to the, the reference text that we're using, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. No contradictions. We accept this as the first rule. God gave it to us. That's what private means. No part of scripture can contradict the whole. There are none. We reconcile everything. There are no contradictions. Why? One author. We assume at all times that every part fits perfectly and it's our job to make that happen. Why is this our first rule of Bible study? Because we were told it is by God. Each verse must be limited to only possible solutions. This is, a, this is just so efficient and so wise before we work up the positive sense of a verse, we want to rule out all the impossible senses. The impossible senses are the ones that would disagree with the rest of the Bible. If we do not start here, then possibilities are infinite. And you're, you're playing a, a, a no-win game. The single greatest restraint on heresy is this rule because you're limiting every verse to what would agree with the rest of the Bible. This rule limits possible senses for the other rules to only have to work through a couple. Usually you just end up with one. Often it's just with one. With all obvious errors rejected, verses get plainer. Thank you, Lord, for this being our first rule and for you telling us first. What can happen if we ignore this rule? I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan, Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. This is David writing the eulogy for Saul and Jonathan. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Well, if we read that verse and we don't remember the first rule of Bible study, which means there's no contradiction in Scripture, we could use this to prove that David and Jonathan were Sodomites, as it is often used. Because their love exceeded the love of women. It has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with the depth of their commitment to each other and the covenant they made that would extend beyond their own lives to the lives of their children and descendants. Ye are of your father the devil, John 8, 44. If we don't have the rest of the scripture to put a limitation on that, then we could be British Israelites that teach that Satan had sex with Eve and Cain was the result. And the Jews are the descendants of Cain because British Israelites believe that Anglo-Saxons are the real descendants of the 12 tribes. Real, they really believe it. The devil and Eve had sex, and the result was Cain, and he's the father of the Jews, because they're Jew-haters. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Proverbs twenty three thirty one could revive a temperance movement against all alcohol, if we didn't have the rest of the Bible telling us that Jesus drank it on a regular basis, so that he was called a wine-bibber. When they continued asking him, this is Jesus from John chapter 8 and verse 7, he that is without sin among you, which we've dealt with the last two Sundays. If we didn't have the rest of the Bible, John 8, 7 could end all judgment since no one is without sin. He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. If you make sin depravity, if you make sin original sin, if you make sin general sin, if you make sin sexual sin, no one can execute judgment because we're all guilty. So we prove that wrong, and it narrows down our options for John 8, 7, and really it's like falling off a log. Once we get to rule 2, which we're not going to tonight, how do we apply this first rule of study? That there are no contradictions in the Bible, everything agrees, and we reconcile all verses to fit one whole. All verses for any subject must be reconciled. We do not value some verses over others like Martin Luther did by rejecting the book of James because he just didn't understand justification by works. Our two-step method first rules out what a verse cannot mean by the rest of the Bible. This is what we do. When someone throws a verse at you that you don't know exactly what it means, you should know enough about the Bible to know what it doesn't mean. And you can tell them, the heart of the righteous studieth to answer, and I'll get you an answer about the positive sense of this verse, but I can tell you right now what it doesn't mean, and then quote a verse or turn to a verse that shows what it doesn't mean. Then, and only then, do we apply the rest of the rules of hermeneutics to find the positive sense for a verse. This is how we do it. This is the first step, and this is the second step. It's the two-step approach to understanding the Bible. Did you catch our two-step method? In case you didn't, our two-step method first rules out what a verse cannot mean by the rest of the Bible. Then and only then do we apply the rest of the rules of hermeneutics to find its positive sense. Or you've got the other 30 or 40 or 60 rules of hermeneutics and you're applying this long list of rules to an infinite number of possibilities. Or a large number of possibilities. But when you've narrowed it down to one or two or three, then you apply the other rules. It's so much simpler, so much more efficient and less dangerous. We must always reject the dishonest tendency to choose only scriptures that agree with us. Right. We want all the scriptures to agree with us. Armenians do this with John 3.16. They don't know what it means. They just take it. It's a great soundbite for them. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus standing and knocking at a door. This is the road to heresy on any subject, is to take verses that just agree with you already. That's eisegesis. That's reading into the Bible what you want it to say, instead of exegesis, taking from the Bible what it's actually teaching. It is the total message of Scripture that is truth. The total message of the whole. Heresies due to ignoring this rule are legion. You know I like to use this word from time to time, don't you? And why do I like to use it? Because heresies are the result of the devil. Full of devils. Genesis 17, 8, God speaking to Abraham, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Well, if we don't know the rest of the Bible, Genesis 15, 18 through 21 cannot teach God owes land to Israel because he doesn't owe them. He gave them all the land. It is stated somewhere between 20 and 50 times in the Old Testament. If you weren't a dispensationalist, you'd know about the verses. And then, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Abraham understood those promises in a spiritual way and not a physical way anyway. He was looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a heavenly country. Oh, thank you, Lord. Do you understand what we learn about that promise by reading the rest of the Bible? And now, why tarryest thou? This is Ananias in the city of Damascus, talking to Saul of Tarsus. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Somebody throws that at you. What denomination would throw that verse at you first? The Church of Christ, Campbellites. Get baptized and wash away your sins. Acts twenty two sixteen cannot teach baptismal salvation of Saul because the rest of the Bible tells us it's by the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sins and that baptism is the answer of a good conscience already made good by the gospel of Christ about the washing away of sins by the blood of Christ. Amen. But you've got to know the rest of the Bible. Right. You say, well, that means we've got to know the Bible. Amen. You know that we shouldn't be talking about hermeneutics unless we're going to learn the Bible. When they saw him, Joseph and Mary, Jesus, in the temple at 12, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. If there's anybody that should know who the father of Jesus is, it would be Mary. And Mary says that Joseph was the father of Jesus right here in this verse. Do you know better than that? Could you put a positive sense on the verse rather easily? Father in office, father in love, father in law, I mean, legal father. Luke 2.48 cannot teach Joseph was Jesus' father because it's got to fit the rest of Scripture. God was his father. He's the son of God. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? You know, two Mormons once took me apart with this a long, long time ago. But now we can take them apart with it. I hope that you understand 1 Corinthians 15, 29, cannot teach baptism for dead relatives in an underground baptistry of a Mormon temple. Because the rest of the Bible teaches us that you don't get baptized for someone else. It is the answer of your good conscience toward God. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Does it say you can fall from grace? Can you fall from grace? Yes, but what does it mean to fall from grace? We know, and we can put a positive sense on this verse, but because you know the rest of the Bible, like Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, like John chapter 6, that He, that Jesus saying, I will not lose a single one of them. We know that you can't really fall from the grace of God, have your name taken in the book of life, and go to hell when you were supposed to go to heaven. Galatians 5, 4 cannot teach you can lose eternal life. And so you blow out most the many denominations and their use of that verse. And then you can narrow it down very easily by going back and looking at it where it says, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Is it possible to be justified by the law? No, neither is it possible to fall from grace. Then what's under consideration up here in your head, your understanding. Were there some Galatians that thought they were justified by the law? Yes. If they thought they were justified by the law, then they had fallen from the proper understanding or doctrine of grace. Lord, you're so good to us. Amen. Do you know what we just cut through with a knife? A two-edged sword. The word of God. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. 1 John 2.27 1 John 2.27 cannot teach that teachers are unnecessary. The Ethiopian eunuch said, how shall I understand Isaiah 53 unless some man guide me? What in the world did Paul ordain Timothy? And Timothy was supposed to ordain others unless teachers are necessary. But first of all, we rule out what it doesn't mean what you're trying to tell me. You little charismatic that wants to sit in your closet and pray for some word of wisdom. I've got the wisdom in the word of God. And I I know what this verse doesn't mean. This rule is ignored and abused even worse. Baptismal regenerationists assume the heresy of their private interpretation of Acts 22:16. 16. That is, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. We've been over it. Here's how bad it gets if you don't want to reconcile everything. You take this verse, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Then they change filth of the flesh in 1 Peter 3, 21, where it says baptism does not wash away the filth of the flesh and they change it to dirt of the body, because remember, Acts 22.16 to them is telling them that it does wash away the filth of the flesh. That means the sinful part of your flesh nature. Do you follow? This is how bad it gets. Some believe baptismal membership by their private interpretation of Acts 2.41. Then they force the poor Ethiopian eunuch into the Jerusalem church that he knows nothing about, and the church wouldn't have wanted him anyway. And he's going going back to his job in Ethiopia, where he works for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And so the connections take place by one verse that is used against the rest of Scripture. Those obsessed with God's love for all men do so by their private interpretation of John 3.16. Then they force Romans 9.13 to mean that God just loved Esau a little less than Jacob. Because they can't have God hating anyone, and since it says God does hate a man named Esau, they have to modify it somehow, because they started up here with a private interpretation. Do you see how neglecting this rule leads to heresy? They find a soundbite in the Bible and put a meaning on it against the rest of the Bible. That's how they do it. Find a soundbite in the Bible and put a meaning on it against the rest of the Bible and the evidence that's there. Then they read every verse on that subject in the light of their one corrupted verse or several. We do the very opposite. We study all Bible verses for any subject and limit every Bible verse to that overall doctrine. And how is that overall doctrine arrived at? By reconciling every verse the Bible has on a given subject, making them all fit together for one coherent whole. Are there difficulties with this rule? We study the whole Bible for the right presuppositions when we come to a text. Right. All verses on a given topic must be honestly studied. Can't avoid any because it might be one that alters your view of the rest on that subject. God inspired sufficient obstacles to save you and me from heresy right. if we'll follow this rule because he gave us this rule and told it it's the first. Told us it's the first rule. After all, he put this rule first. I think I just said that. He will bless its use. God's providence will provide an Elihu or a Philip or some other way of knowing what we need to know to be saved. Consider how God saved us from foot washing. 1 Timothy 5.10. He saved us in helping us understand John 13 and putting a limitation upon it because John 13, the way that it's used by some that practice foot washing, contradicts 1 Timothy 5.10. And so we're forced to put them together. And so we do it on every subject. We have only learned what a verse cannot mean. So far, we've only learned what a verse cannot mean. Because it's rule number one what a verse can't mean. Only what a verse cannot mean. Is that all we've learned? That's true. You grasp the purpose of the first rule. Thank you. But it limits study to just a few possible solutions, so it's very efficient. We are moving quickly to arrive at the proper sense of a verse in the Bible this way. With possibilities limited, the other rules work well. Do not forget this first rule of interpreting verses. When someone comes to you and says, what does this verse mean? And you know that they already have their own agenda and meaning on that verse. Refute their meaning. Don't try to give them a positive sense. You must first put to death what they think it means before they will even hear you tell them what you think it means. We find the context and doctrine of the whole Bible. It's funny to use the word context referring to the whole Bible, but for this particular rule, that's what we're doing. Then and only then do we move to the small context, which is rule number two. Rule number two in understanding the Bible is the small context. This is the verse that we use tonight. Knowing this first. We are dealing with the more sure word of prophecy. We are dealing with inspiration by the Holy Ghost. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, we are indeed dealing with scripture, is of any private interpretation. Separate, individual, alone, special, peculiar, unique, apart from the whole interpretation. Can't allow it, won't allow it. It's all got to fit together because there is one author. They were all moved by the Holy Ghost. We first prove what a verse cannot mean. John 8. We did it. He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. He that is without sin among you. Let me quote it correctly. Then and only then do we try to find its true and proper sense. This is rule number one of interpreting the Bible. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. This cannot mean sin in the sense of original sin total depravity, general sin, sexual sins, or no man should judge in any of the five spheres. Right. We're all shut down. Can't mean that. It has a far better meaning. But do you know how we arrived at that far better meaning? Do you want to know how your pastor arrived at the far better meaning that's been enlightening to us the last two Sundays? By this rule of Bible study. Right. Ruling out what it cannot mean. And then finding, oh, yes. Why didn't I see that before? Because we hadn't ruled out all the fluff that is preached from John chapter 8 about not judging. Neither do I condemn thee. Go ahead, adulterous, leave. It's okay how you live. It's okay that you're living with somebody. It's okay because Jesus wouldn't cast a stone at you and neither will we. That is not in that, that's not taught in that passage at all. There isn't forgiveness. There isn't compassion in John 8, 1 through 11. There is brilliant use by Jesus Christ, the law of Moses, to condemn accusers. For lots more in the first rule of Bible study, it's knowing the scriptures, the 75 page document and the section in there with rule number one, which we just covered in brief. We are Bible Christians four ways. We believe what it claims about its inspiration. We believe 66 books of the KJV by canonicity. That's the science and the fact of certain books came together to make up the books of the Bible. We believe the word level truth by preservation, so that we've got 20 one word arguments in the New Testament where a New Testament writer or speaker uses one word from the Old Testament for a doctrinal argument. 20. Who's the keeper of the one word arguments? Titus. 20 because we believe God has preserved his words and we love the fact that Jesus and Paul especially made doctrinal arguments from single words. Therefore, can a paraphrase possibly be God's word? Not a chance. Can a dynamic equivalent translation like the NIV be God's word? Not a chance because they change the words and we need a Bible that we can trust at the word level where the words do not change, where the word cannot be broken, the scripture cannot be broken because the word gods is the only word that should be there. We don't want to read some version that says civil rulers because they've replaced the word gods with something they think is a little more appropriate. We need the word gods for the internal integrity of our Bible. and We've got it. We give the sense by its rules of interpretation, and the Lord told us which rule was first. It's got to fit the whole because I've one author behind it and there is no special, unique, peculiar, alone, or separate interpretation that you should ever come up with. It is one presentation of truth. There it is. That's what we believe. God inspired the words by indicting or dictating them to men, 40 men that wrote them down. He then, by the apostles' authority, brought those 66 books together. The Old Testament was already done. He preserved them through the transmission of copies and translations, and then he taught us internally how to interpret it. Thank you, Lord. Stand with me, please. Thank you. I'm sorry to go so fast. I'm sorry if it's late. It's earlier than many times. It was just a few minutes. Heavenly Father, we thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed yourself to us in various ways, but primarily through Scripture and by thy Spirit. We thank thee for the Holy Ghost that moved men to write the words of Scripture, and we thank thee that you have put the Holy Spirit inside us and given us thy word in the English language with your divine stamp of approval upon it and 406 years of fruit bearing so that we know it's your word. We can take your word. We can preach the word boldly We can embrace it in our hearts. We find it matching the Holy Spirit moving upon us inside, and we love it, and we thank Thee for it. We thank Thee for canonicity in our 66 books. We thank You for for preserving it to our language, and we thank Thee for teaching us how to interpret it. O Lord, what we do not see about Bible interpretation, show us. But most of all, what we are not doing of what we have properly interpreted, give us the strength, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we would be followers of the light of the world and not walk in darkness like those around us. Forgive us. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for knowing the truth and ever disobeying it, for knowing the truth and ever neglecting it. Help us, Heavenly Father, to love it, embrace it, obey it, defend it, promote it in every opportunity that you give us and give us some opportunities. Go with us now. Bless these dear people. Speak to them even while they sleep tonight. Preserve their lives, preserve their souls. Fill them with thy spirit. Cause the word of God to be alive and fresh to them. And bless us to be a Bible-believing and a Bible-obeying church. For the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. amen. You are dismissed.